Well, I'm going to finish our series now on true spirituality. Uh, next week, Donovan's going to be uh, speaking, so you're in for a treat there. There'll be some crying, I'm sure, and some fun, and, and uh, certainly some crying, but uh, he's up next week, and then after that, we've got Palm Sunday and, and uh, Easter Sunday, and so this is the end of true spirituality. No doubt there are many other topics we could have covered, but uh, as I was getting ready for this message and, and, and during the series, uh, there was one topic I, I really wanted to get to, and uh, throughout most of this series, we've been talking about misconceptions about true spirituality, right? We've been talking about misconceptions Christians have, common misconceptions Christians have about what true spirituality is. And these misconceptions keep many of us in bondage. Isn't that true? They keep many of us in guilt and condemnation, and they keep us from, from hitting the mark that God wants us to hit. Because we think he wants us to do one thing, we think true spirituality looks like one thing, and then we find out actually true spirituality is a whole lot better. It's a whole lot freer, it's a whole lot more loving, it's a whole lot more wonderful, and that's what we've been talking about in the series. Today, I, I, we're going to kind of shift gears just a little bit for this last message in the series, and uh, instead of focusing so much on misconceptions about uh, true spirituality, even though we will get to some misconceptions as well, what I want to talk about today is the core of true spirituality. I want to talk about the heart. We've been talking about the misconceptions of what true spirituality is not. But I want to look at what, at its core, what is there, is there a behavior, is there a fruit, is there a way of living at the center of true spirituality that kind of stands out, you know, above all of the others, or at least most of the others. And I, I really believe there is. And maybe there's more than one, maybe there's a few, but I think there's one trait in particular and it's not an external trait. Uh, the amazing thing I find is that often it's the people who look the most spiritual who don't exhibit this trait. And, and sometimes we're surprised by the people who look the least spiritual on the outside who do exhibit this trait. It doesn't have anything to do with being young or old or single or married or, you know, tattooed or not tattooed or suit and jacket and traditional hymn or heavy metal. It has nothing to do with any of those externals. I really believe that this, this one behavior, this one fruit, and I'm going to show you in Scripture today, is, is probably the, the number one thing that sets apart a person who is truly Christ-like from one who is not. Someone who is truly spiritual from someone who is not. And what I want to talk about today is loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. And just to put a little caveat in there, I was planning this message before Thursday, okay? <laughs> so... I don't want anyone reading between the lines. Can you do that with me? Can you promise not to read between the lines, okay? This is not me responding to anything. It's very interesting just the way I think the Holy Spirit set it up perhaps, but I was planning to do this already. Anyway, love your enemies, and I want to start by looking at the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. He says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there's two things I want you to notice about loving your enemies. First of all, loving your enemies is not optional. 
Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If you want to be a child of God, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is part of the deal. This isn't one of those things where Jesus has gifted some people. You know, Jesus has gifted some people to teach and other people he's gifted to do something else. That's not how it is with loving your enemies. It's not Jesus has gifted some people. Some people will be good at loving their enemies and other Christians won't be. No, no. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you can be sons of your Father in heaven. Of course, none of us is perfect at this. I will put my hand up first thing today. I'm not preaching you from a place of having got this all figured out in my own life. All of us is a work in progress. The point here is not that if you ever make a mistake in this, you're not a child of God. The point is if you're not willing to do this, if you're not willing, if this isn't the goal in your life, if this isn't what you're shooting for, then you can't be a child of God because this is what a child of God is. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The second thing I want you to notice, and this has to do with our series here on true spirituality, is I want you to notice how Jesus uses the love your enemies test to draw a dividing line between those who are spiritual and those who are not. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Anybody can do that. I mean, anybody can, can love the people who love them. And we should love the people who love us. Obviously, we're not against loving our family and stuff like that. We should love the people who love us. But Jesus says, anyone can do that. You don't have to be truly spiritual. You don't have to be Christ-like to love the people who love you. Even the tax collectors and the Gentiles, he says, can do that. But if you want to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect, if you really want to be like Jesus, if you don't just want to look like you're spiritual, if you actually want to be spiritual, then the thing that sets you apart from everybody else is that you will love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so that's what I want to look at today. And there's four things I, I want to look at. First of all, I want to look at two misconceptions of what loving your enemies is not. And the reason I want to do that is because a lot of us have these kind of mushy, sentimental ideas about love that don't match up to what real love, biblical love is. And if we take those mushy, sentimental ideas about love into Jesus' command to love your enemies, what we're going to end up with is something very weak and wimpy and passive rather than the robust love your enemies that Jesus modeled for us in the Gospels. So I, first want to, I just first want to get rid of two things, what loving your enemies is not. Because I don't want to go to that weak, wimpy, passive place. I want us to go to the Jesus place of how do we really love people? How do we really love our enemies? And then I want to finish this message with two things. What loving your enemies does look like. So two things here. Loving your enemies, what loving your enemies is not. First of all, loving your enemies does not mean you always have to get along with everyone. A lot of Christians have this misconception about this command to love your enemies that it means we as Christians always have to avoid conflict. People have this idea that loving your enemies and loving people means we, must, we, we can't stand up for things. We can't, you know, we can't get into, into situations where there could be conflict. I mean, we see this too often in marriages and it's sad. You've got one partner who just becomes a doormat for the other partner and they think they're doing what Jesus wants them to do. They don't, they don't ever set up boundaries. They never stand up for anything. If something's going to cause conflict, if something's going to cause pain in the relationship, they think Jesus wouldn't want me to do that. Jesus wants me to love my spouse, and so they become a doormat, and they think that that is what it means to love. 
And that's not what Jesus means here. Part of the problem with, uh, with our view of loving our enemies is the fact that too many Christians today have gotten this idea like peace and unity is the goal of the Christian life rather than the fruit of something else. I'll say it again. Too many Christians today have gotten this idea like peace and unity in our marriages, in our relationships, between churches, whatever it is. Too many Christians have gotten this idea like peace and unity is the goal. We should be working for peace and unity rather than realizing that peace and unity is the result of something else. And of course, we love peace and unity. I'm not preaching here that we're against peace and unity. Uh, Dad's in, in BC right now meeting with all these churches and doing church renewal because we love working with other churches. The point isn't that unity is amazing. Unity is amazing. Peace is incredible. God loves peace and unity. The point is that we work for the wrong thing rather than working for the thing that leads to true peace and unity. And the goal of the Christian life is not to come to peace and unity with everyone. The goal of the Christian life is to come into allegiance to Jesus Christ, to listen to his voice and to obey him. And out of that comes true unity and peace. Amen? And so this idea that we just have to get along, that if we could all just get along, then God would be happy, um, can be refuted with many stories in Scripture, but I want to read you one here today from Genesis 11, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And so I just want to read you this story. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language, and you're going to notice throughout this passage that the focus here is that these people had unity. They had unity, they were getting along. They were all on the same page. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, so they're together, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth okay and so the whole point of the story so far is they don't want to be disunified i don't think it's a word they didn't want to be ununified or not unified they want to be together right that's the whole point Let's do stuff together. Let's build a city together. Let's all be together and be at peace and have unity. And according to the way many Christians today think, God should have been really super happy. Right? Many Christians today just think, we get, you know what? God would be happy if all the churches would just forget all their differences and just do more stuff together. Then God would be happy and a revival would break out. Well, again, amen. I mean, I love it. We love it when churches do stuff together. We love working with churches. But this idea that if we just got together, then God would be happy is wrong. Because at the Tower of Babel, everybody got together and they were happy. But God wasn't happy. And the reason he wasn't happy is because they had put unity above obedience. And the only kind of unity and peace that Jesus wants is the unity and peace that comes out of obedience and submission to him. And so let's finish the story here. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. So they're unified. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. He split them up. He fought against their unity. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. 
And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. See, God doesn't want our unity so much as he wants our obedience. That's what God wants. Now, of course, someone will say, but didn't Jesus in the gospel say that we're supposed to be peacemakers? Yes, he most certainly did. Let me read it to you. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A lot of people have taken this passage to just mean that in all situations, Christians should be working to just make everybody okay. And what that ignores is the fact, I mean, if you, in your, in your house, if you have a problem in your walls, now, I'm not the person to call if you have a problem with anything in your house, okay? But imagine you have a problem in your walls. I don't actually know what you would do to fix it, but I know what you shouldn't do. If you've got rotten walls, what you don't do is just slap some drywall over top and whitewash it and make it look like it's all okay, right? You don't want to just go in there and wash over the very real problems and difficulties. What you want to do is take the drywall off. It's going to get very messy. You're going to have to do some hard work, but what you have to do is get the wall right. Fix the wall, then put the drywall back on and do whatever else you got to do. And when Jesus talks here about being peacemakers, he's not talking about us in our marriages and our relationships and our churches and communities. He's not talking about Christians running into every situation and trying to make everybody happy. That's not the kind of peacemaking Jesus is looking for. And to prove it to you, let me read another passage that Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, Jesus said this. The same Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers, said this. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? You would say after reading Matthew 5, 9, yeah, that's what you came for. And he says, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So on the one hand, Jesus says, I want you to be peacemakers. And on the other hand, he says, do you think I came to to bring peace? No, no, I came to bring division. And you say, how can Jesus say both? How can he say, on the one hand, I want you to be peacemakers, and on the other hand, I came to bring division? How can Jesus say both of these things and not be contradicting each other? The reason has to do with the kind of peace Jesus wants. Jesus just doesn't want everybody getting along. What he wants, he's a king. He is a king. And what he wants is everybody's allegiance. And the only time we're ever going to get peace here on the earth is when Jesus returns and when he's king over it all and there's nobody fighting against them anymore. And once he's king and everybody's obeying his laws, we're going to finally have true, lasting, eternal, wonderful peace. Amen? But in the meantime, what Jesus does not want us doing is making peace by just making everyone feel good. What he wants, this is the kind of peacemaker Jesus wants. He's a king. He wants our allegiance. We make peace by helping bring people from out here where they're not listening to God and not following him. We bring them into his kingdom. And it's in his kingdom where they find true peace. That's the kind of peacemaker Jesus wants us to be. So yes, we love unity. We love doing stuff together. But our primary focus isn't on unity and peace. What our primary focus is on is is the things Pastor Ray is always teaching us about. We've got to get people listening to Jesus. We've got to get people following him. We've got to get people obeying his voice. Amen? That's how we make peace. By making Jesus king. 
All right, so that's misconception one. Loving your enemies does not mean we always have to get along with everyone all the time. Misconception number two about loving your enemies is the misconception that loving your enemies does not mean we should ignore sin. Loving your enemies does not mean we should ignore sin. A lot of Christians today are pushing this idea that, we should, that the church should stop talking about sin and just focus on loving people. And I mean, to, you know, to part of that, I can just say amen. I can full, wholeheartedly say amen. The church needs to crank up the love. This church needs to crank up the love. All churches need to crank up the love. We need to crank up the love 10, 20, 30 times. And we need to love all people. Amen? Every single human being on planet Earth, I don't care who they are or how they live, we must love every single person without exception. We need to crank up the love. But this idea that these Christians are pushing, what these Christians are pushing, often they talk about getting back to our roots. They talk about how we've got to stop talking so much about sin and we have to just love, love people just like Jesus did. They talk about how we have to go back to our roots. You know, Jesus, and there's this idea that Jesus was sort of like this super nice kind of hippie guy and he just went around loving people. Oh, I just accept you and I love you and I don't care about sin and the churches need to get more like that. And that's how we love people. Well, the fact of the matter is that is just plain, regardless of the fact that so many Christians say that there's such a big movement of people pushing it, the fact of the matter is it's completely false. It's not in the Gospels. Jesus talked more about sin and hell than anybody I know. If I go back, if, I, if we go back, now we're talking here today about loving your enemies. That same message, it's the Sermon on the Mount. That same message, people love that little excerpt, verses 43 to 48 of chapter 5. People pull that out, they post it out. Non-Christians even talk about that one, love your enemies. Christians got to love their enemies. And some Christians say, you got to love your enemies. See, we got to focus on love, not on sin. What people ignore is the fact that the first 42 verses before those are filled with Jesus hammering away at both sin and threatening people with hell. He goes through anger, he goes through lust, he goes through breaking promises, he goes through divorce, he goes through all these things, and he, and he just hits them in strong, fiery language. In the same message where he talks about loving your enemies. Let me just read you a couple of excerpts. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. So remember, this is the same chapter, just a few verses before, same chapter as love your enemies. We find this. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's the same message as love your enemies. I mean, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? I mean, sometimes people, you know, think of us here at Southland as occasionally preaching fiery messages. I have never used language that strong. I mean, they should put Jesus on the front page of the paper with those quote right above, luster should gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands. <laughs> Comment boards would love it. How about anger? Matthew 5, 21 to 22. I want you to notice how often Jesus talks about hell. He did in the verse I just showed you. Same message as love your enemies, verses 21 to 22. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. 
and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus was constantly talking about hell along with sin. I mean, if we're going to go back to our roots about Jesus, we're going to talk about hell a lot more, not less. And I could show you other passages in this same Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked about hell and sin more in the Sermon on the Mount than we have here at Southland in a co- the last couple of years combined. And here's the thing I know about Jesus. Jesus loves people more than anyone who ever lived. Is that not true? Jesus loved people more than anyone who has ever lived. And he also talked about sin and hell regularly. And the thing is, the two of them aren't opposed to each other. See, people have this idea that if you talk about sin, then you don't love people. The two are not opposed to each other. Jesus didn't just love people and talk about sin. He talked about sin and hell because he loved people. See, Jesus knows the harmful effects of sin more than any single one of us here. He, he, he knows what sin will do to a person more than anyone else here. He also knows how bad an eternity away from him after death is. And he knows that better than any of us here. And because he loves people so much, he regularly warned people. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know how this scenario would ever happen. Obviously, it's, it's a little ludicrous. But, I mean, just imagine that a loved one, you know, you're looking down the table and there's someone you love from your family and they're about to pick up and drink a glass of juice that is laced with poison. Again, I don't know why this would happen, right? But it, so you look down and, and, and you, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them, don't drink the juice, right? Don't drink it. Now, what would you say if someone came up to you and said, you know what? We got we to focus more on loving people here. And you don't upset them. They're thirsty. They've had a bad day. Why are you going to yell down the table not to drink the juice? Just let them, you know what? Just pat them on the back, give them a little hug, and let them drink the juice. They want to drink the juice, right? Would you, is that loving? True story. True story. Not that part. That wasn't true. <laughs> this next one is true. I was, uh, I was 10 years old, and uh, my, my, the Dirksen family, we had a big extended family gathering in British Columbia. And at the time, we lived in Ontario, so that was a long drive. So we drove all the way to BC, and we had this three-day gathering, and it was, you know, everyone who was from the right clan of Dirksons, D-U-E-R, and uh, that you could imagine, okay? So cousins, second cousins. And I was just a kid. I hadn't met most of them because we lived out east, so most of them I did not know. Uh, um, and so anyway, we were there, and it was a lot of fun. And we were eating lunch the one day, and we saw, there's all these picnic tables every, everywhere there, and I think there was a hundred and some people there. I forget what the exact number was, but... But uh, anyway, my Auntie Jane, and some of you might know her, she teaches piano here in the area, and a wonderful woman, and, and so we were all eating hot dogs, and Auntie Jane was down at the end of the table, and, she, and there was these wasps flying around, and as she's eating her hot dog, a wasp, and I see it happen, and nobody else does, I see this wasp fly into her hot dog into the bun, okay? So now I have a choice to make, right? What am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? So I have, cho- I have choices. On the one hand, you know, I, like, so I could yell down the table and say, hey, Auntie Jane, don't take another bite. You have a, you have a wasp in your hot dog. But, the, I mean, the downside to that is I don't know a lot of the people here. I'm 10. I'm a little bit shy. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't really want to cause a big ruckus. And then, of course, with my luck, she'll open the hot dog and there won't be a wasp there and I'll look, I'll look stupid. And so I thought to myself, you know, so what am I going to do, right? Am I going to take a risk? Am I going to yell out? Or am I just going to watch her? And I thought to myself, you know what? What are the chances she's going to get stung in her mouth? 
I mean, honestly, how many people here have ever seen anyone bite into a hot dog with a wasp in it? Anybody? <laughs> so I'm thinking, it's not going to hurt her. What the chances? No, it's not going to hurt her. I'm, so anyway, I said, hmm, nothing. <laughs> I love my Auntie Jane too much to make a big stink at lunch, right? So I watched her. She took one big juicy bite. Hmm. Even now, I'm hungry thinking about it, but... <laughs> She chews it down, nothing happened. I think, good. She goes for the second bite. I can still see her. One, shoe, two, chews. Like this, the eyes go open. Hot dog, like a projectile, 10 feet out of the mouth. Ow! Later on, my conscience kind of got to me, and I went to her, and I said, you know, Auntie Jane, technically, I saw that wasp go into your hot dog before you took a bite. You what? Now, the thing is, who was I loving more in that scenario? Was I loving her or was I loving myself? I'll tell you who I was loving. Yeah, you guys got it. I was loving myself. And sometimes, sometimes when we are not telling people the truth, it has nothing to do with loving them. It has to do with wanting to keep our popularity, with wanting to keep the peace, with wanting to keep our comfort. It has nothing to do with loving the other person. And Jesus loved people more than anyone who ever lived. And he talked about sin and hell. Now, he, we're not stupid about this. We don't talk about sin and hell like a bunch of crazy nuts. We don't talk about it in a hateful or bad way. We talk about it in loving, respectful ways. All right, and we listen to the Lord in all of this. But my point here just is that loving your enemies does not mean, does not mean that we have to ignore sin. If we really believe this book, if we really believe that hell is what awaits people who die apart from Jesus, if we really believe that sin is absolutely terrible for people, then we have to tell them about it in a loving, gracious way, of course. So those are two misconceptions. I just want to get those out of the way because it's important that I don't want people taking this love your enemies message to a place where, where that's not what it is. But now let's look at what loving your enemies is. Two things. And of course, there would be many more things too, but let's look at two things, what loving your enemies is. Number one, loving your enemies means never returning insult for insult or evil for evil. In Matthew chapter five, just before, uh, just before um, Jesus' whole thing about loving your enemies, um, he gives th these verses, verses 38 to 42, and he gives us one of the ways in which we love our enemies. And this is what he says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, those of you who've been around Southland for a couple of years, you might remember that, that a year and a half ago, November 2011, I, I preached a two-part mini-series on this passage of Scripture called Turn the Other Cheek. And I would recommend you can go back and you can listen to that if you did not hear that. I can't develop all those points over again. But part of what, I just wanted to say a couple things about this passage before we get into it. Um, but part of what we looked at in that, in that series is the fact that this passage is not talking about, you know, one country attacks another country and Christians aren't allowed to, to, to join the army and defend their country. That's not what this passage is about. And this passage isn't about, you know, uh, someone's trying to kidnap your kids, you just have to kind of watch them and you can't do anything about it. It's not, or someone attacks your wife. This passage has nothing to do with those scenarios, okay? Jesus is talking about a very specific 
situation that happened regularly in a culture in which he lived in that time. And so I want you to notice that he, he calls out the right cheek. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn on the other also. So he doesn't say, you know, someone punches you in the head, turn the other cheek, even though that might be something you, you need to do sometimes there too. But that's not what he's talking about in this passage. He doesn't say if someone kicks you in the face, turn the other cheek. Again, that might be something you sometimes need to do, but that's not what this passage is talking about. In the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, they're one, of the, one of the worst insults you could give if you were a person of higher social status and you wanted to humiliate or demean someone of lower social status. So this is something like a Roman would do to a Jew or a wealthy person would do to a poor person or a master would do to a slave. What you would do is they had a right-handed culture is you would with your right hand, in the back of your right hand, you would slap the person to demean them, to humiliate them. You would slap them across the face with the back of your hand. Okay, and of course, if you're, you know, if, if I'm the slapper here, and, and this is the slappy, and uh, so the, the slapper, I don't know what else to call it. So the slapper goes to slap, and here I am, I'm going to get it on the right cheek. So Jesus said, if, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Again, there's other situations where you need to turn the cheek too, but a specific situation Jesus is talking about here is not where someone is trying to physically harm your family. He's talking about the situation where someone is deeply insulting you. Because the whole point of the slap to the face was to humiliate you, was to insult you in the a, in a worst way possible. And the fact of the matter is we don't have to go back 2,000 years to figure out how insulting that would have been. I mean, I think still today, most of you guys here today, I think if we had a choice between someone just winding up and socking us in the face, just punching us and knocking us out, or just getting slapped in the face, I think most of us would pick slap in the face, right? Um, some of you women might not understand this, but for a guy, I mean, you get punched in the face, you know, a week later, you're laughing about it with your buddies, right? But a slap to the face is like, it's so dehumanizing, it's so humiliating. And so it, inside of you, it just boils up. You want to respond back. And so Jesus is talking about that situation. He's talking about when you are insulted and attacked and demeaned and humiliated, what do you do? And in, his, and in his, the, his response and in what he teaches us, we see the vast love of God and the moral superiority of God above us as humans. Because Jesus gives us a, a response. It's the hardest thing, humanly speaking, to do, but it's the best thing. I mean, the easiest thing to do, the easiest thing to do if someone insults you like that, if someone humiliates you like that, the easiest thing to do is to just respond. Your anger just naturally comes up. The easiest thing to do is, is hit back. Insult for insult, humiliation for humiliation, name calling for name calling. That's the easiest thing to do. And that's not the way Jesus gives us. The second easiest thing to do, or for some people maybe the easiest, the second thing, easiest thing to do in that situation is if you're not going to fight back, the second easiest thing to do is just tuck tail and run or become a doormat. Some people do that too. In the face of humiliation, in the face of attack, in the face of hatred, some people just run away. And Jesus doesn't give us either of those two ways. He doesn't give us fight back, humiliation for humiliation. He also doesn't give us lie down and become a doormat or run away. He gives us a better third way, a harder way, but a much better way. He gives us a third way, and that is stand there and turn the other cheek. See, turning the other cheek isn't about weakness. It's actually about strength. It's God's strength. It's love strength 
This is what true strength looks like. And the amazing thing is, turning the other cheek actually works better, doesn't it? Turning the, actual, turning the other cheek is, is unnatural. Our natural response is to, to, to hit back or run. But our natural response isn't actually what works the best. I mean, so often, you know, we respond to anger with anger, humiliation with humiliation, name-calling for name-calling. How often has any of us found that to solve a situation? Please don't put up your hands. It'll embarrass me anyway. <laughs> I mean, we all know it doesn't work. We all want to do it in the moment. Someone, someone you know, your spouse is, yells at you, and, and you just yell back. Well, has that fixed anything now? It doesn't fix anything. Name-calling for name-calling. Nothing gets fixed. All that you start is a cycle of more and more anger. You don't have less anger. Sometimes our, our culture tells us that you have to get the anger out. And sometimes, and, and there's certain elements not, that, that sometimes teach that you got to, you know, get your kids to just get their anger out of them. The fact of the matter is, expressing your anger in a back-and-forth situation like that doesn't get the anger out. It increases it. Isn't that true? It increases it. So when you fight back, it doesn't help anything. But the amazing thing about turning the other cheek is it's like taking the plug out of a full bathtub. The water just drains out. And when you're in a conflict and someone hates you and they're insulting you and they're coming against you and name-calling you and you turn the other cheek, it just drains the anger and the hate and the bitterness right out. Isn't that true? And again, I mean, I'm, I'm just... This is one of those messages where I'm just preaching and the whole week I was just praying. I'm like, Lord... I, I want to I go to what I'm preaching about. I, I want to get there someday. I mean, I mess up in this so often myself. But uh, I was thinking of something happened a few years ago, and a guy criticized me for something, and I just responded to, like, totally with no spirituality whatsoever. And I, I responded back with just defensiveness and harshness and anger. I just, his criticism came in, and I just went right back at him, and I just escalated it. And... Uh, and totally immature and totally not spiritual at all, and I had to confess it later. But the amazing thing is what happened next. So he gave me a criticism, which wasn't even that bad, and I responded back with anger and harshness. And what he did next was just was really amazing. He didn't return my anger and my, and my bitterness back at me. He just said, okay, and took it. I don't know if any of you have ever had someone do that to you. And it's like, come on, fight fair. <laughs> right? I mean, when you... When you throw a punch out there at someone, the worst way they can hurt you is to not hit back. Isn't that true? Because when you hit them, you want them to hit you back so you can be justified in what you said. And he just said, okay, and left it at that. And in that moment, all the anger and bitterness just drained right out of me. It was like a punch in the gut, just knocks the wind out of you. And all that was in, a, in just an instant, what's inside of me is shame and sorrow. And immediately I just had to apologize to the man. I just had to say, you know what? I'm sorry. And with that one turning the other cheek, the relationship is restored and there's love and peace and unity on the inside rather than all this anger and bitterness. Turning the other cheek just plain works better. Like it says in Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, someone might argue, but Chris, you don't understand. In my situation, with my enemy, and you're thinking about your spouse or whoever, right? But with my enemy, I mean, they're just so hateful that even when I turn the other cheek, they, it doesn't drain the anger out of them. It, it, they just keep coming after me. And you say, but, and to which I say in that situation, the verse is still true. It's still true. 
Because even if it doesn't drain the anger and bitterness out of them, it'll drain the anger and bitterness out of you. And you won't have to carry around the stress and the anger and the bitterness and all that sort of stuff that comes with it. When you turn the other cheek, it is healing to you. It's healing to you. And besides that, turning the other cheek isn't just about what you don't do anyway. It's also about what you do. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he didn't just mean that we're not supposed to not do anything bad back. He didn't just say, you know, don't do anything back to your enemies. He also said, pray for your enemies. The call of turn the other cheek isn't just about what you don't do back to them. It's also about what you do do back to them, which is you bless them. You do good to those who hurt you. You pray for those who persecute you. 1 Peter 3 verse 9 says this, and I could show you verse after verse after verse. This is a huge theme throughout the New Testament. Huge theme. 1 Peter 3 verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So it's not just that you don't do evil for evil. When you turn the other cheek, you're also going to give a blessing to those who hurt you. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for, for, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The call of the Christian life is not just for us not to do bad, but for us to actually do good to our enemies. This is what true spirituality looks like so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is not optional. This is not for some Christians to do. This is what you signed up for when you said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And of course, Jesus himself is our example, and he's the greatest example. If we look at his example, his enemies told blatant lies about him. I mean, if you read Matthew 26, they rounded up a whole bunch of crooks, a whole bunch of scoundrels, and they lined them up in a court and had them tell lies about Jesus that every single person in the court knew was a lie. They, they, they told blatant lie after lie after lie about him that everyone in the room knew was a lie. In addition to that, they paid one of his disciples, a man who was part of his inner circle, who was supposed to be one of his, one of his best friends, they paid him to betray Jesus. And then they put a blindfold on him and punched him in the face and made fun of him and mocked him for hours. I mean, right there, I can safely say right now, I don't think there's another person here in the room who has ever been hated or abused like that. But maybe you are here and maybe you have had something to that level. Well, that, he wasn't done yet being abused. Because after that, his enemies manipulated the government and they manipulated the governor, Pontius Pilate, who was not a good man himself, but he wasn't keen to kill Jesus at the beginning. He, he tried to get out of it. They manipulated him and pressured him into killing Jesus. And he handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers, who then tortured him physically in the most cruel ways imaginable for hours. There was more mockery, crown of thorns, spitting on him, beating him, whipping him. Then they paraded him through the streets in front of all his enemies, in front of all these people who were gloating over him. How do you think that would feel? How would that feel? Your enemies are against you, they're against you, they're against you, they're against you, and then you get paraded in front of them and they get to laugh at you. Ha ha, you were wrong after all. 
You were wrong after all. You told us we were sinners. You told us that we need to follow you. No, we don't. And they're laughing at him as he goes to his death. How would that feel? Then they nail him to a cross. And while he's on the cross, it says in Luke 23, it says that the Pharisees continued to mock him. He's dying. He's been tortured. He's got blood coming out of everywhere. He is in internal and external agony on the cross, and they're still mocking him. And so the question is, how did he respond? He's our leader. He's the one we're supposed to be following. We're supposed to do what he did. So what did he do? Did he defend himself? Did he curse them back? Did he yell back for yelling? Did he insult for insult? Did he make all kinds of vile threats? What did he do? Let's find out. Luke chapter 23. Jesus is hanging on the cross now. He's been through all this stuff. His enemies have hurt him in every way, inside and outside. You could possibly be hurt. And none of us here, none of us, I can safely say, has ever experienced hurt and hate to the level that he has now experienced it at this point. And he's on the cross, and this is what he says. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, Jesus? They weren't even sorry. It's not like they had apologized. It's not like they're repenting in front of the cross going, how could we have done something so bad? Please forgive us. They're still mocking him. They're still making fun of him. They're still humiliating him. He's in the process of dying a slow and torturous death because of them. And without them saying sorry, he's saying, Father, forgive them. Wow. Wow. And I want you to notice his perspective about his enemies. I mean, if anybody should have been pitied in this situation, it's Jesus. But he says about his enemies, they're not the ones who are being hurt. They're the ones who are doing the hurting. And right in the midst of them doing the hurting to them, he's not feeling sorry about himself. He's actually feeling sorry for them. He says, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus looks at them and he says, they're blind. They are on their way to hell and they don't know it. And so, yes, they're hurting me. He's the one who should be pitied. But instead, he's the one pitying them. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're blind. They're on their way to hell and they don't know it. And I just think in my life how far short I fall of that. People come against us. How rarely do we feel sorry for them? Rather, we feel sorry for ourselves, yeah? People come against us, people in your relationships, people, whatever, marriage things happen in our lives, and people come against us, and we just think, oh, why would this happen to me? It's so unfair. It's so unfair. It's so not right. They don't know who I really am. I don't know why they would say that to me. I don't know why they would do that to me. We feel sorry for ourselves. Jesus never felt sorry for himself. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the second thing we see, loving your enemies means forgiving those who attack you. This is what it means. It means you forgive those who attack you and you desire them to come to the truth. Genuinely inside, you forgive them 
and you desire them to actually come to know Jesus and to be blessed by him. That's the heart of Christianity. Rather than getting bitter, rather than getting bitter when you get treated unfairly, rather than getting bitter when people insult you, we have a heavenly Father and a heavenly perspective, which is why we can actually rejoice. We can have joy and love and peace in our hearts when people are mad at us. And Jesus says, I'm going to finish with these words, Matthew 5, same message. This is all the same sermon as love your enemies as yourself. Look what Jesus says about this. We can have joy and peace and love in the midst of hatred and persecution. Here's what he says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus says, don't go have a pity party. Don't get depressed. Don't fall apart. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And I want to just take a moment here, just quietly, to reflect in our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring to our minds right now anyone we are holding a grudge against. Anyone. Could be a spouse, could be a family member, could be a boss, could be an employee. And no doubt, no doubt they did something bad to us, Jesus. No doubt they did something bad to us. But you forgave anyway. You actually forgave. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord Jesus, I pray you would bring names to our minds right now of people we are holding bitterness and anger against. Because Jesus, if we want to be sons of your Father in heaven, we must be willing to forgive those people. I pray that you would bring a name, a picture, a face to our minds right now of someone we, we despise and we can't stand them because they've hurt us. Lord Jesus, we have got to rise above. As a church, we have got to rise above. We have got to become a people like you. And Jesus, I want you to help me too. I'm so far from this so often in my life. We want to love those who persecute us. We want to be good. We want to do good to our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.